Hey everyone, Kyle here. Before we get into our latest episode of Brain Buzz, uh, I just wanted to remind you to hit the follow button on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. That ensures that you'll get all of the latest content every time we publish a brand new episode with exciting new researchers. So make sure to head over and do that now. Yeah. All right. In today's episode, we speak with Dr. Gary Lewandowski, professor of psychology at Monmouth University, to talk about relationships breakups, and self-expansion. Yeah, so our conversation today uh, talked about how people benefit from breakups. I asked the age-old question of how long does it take to get over a breakup? Uh, we explain why plunging a toilet can be self-expanding. <laughs> and uh, our myths and misconceptions, Gary talks about why being selfish shouldn't be considered a bad thing in relationships. We hope you enjoy listening, and here's the intro. Friends, colleagues, and the romantically heartbroken, welcome to another episode of Brain Buzz. We are your hosts. I'm Kyle. And I'm Drake. And today we are joined by a relationship researcher and scientist, professor of psychology at Monmouth University, award-winning educator, TED Talk speaker with a multi-million view video, contributing writer and expert to hundreds of media news outlets, author of Science of Relationships, Answers to Your Questions About Dating, Marriage, and Family, Dr. Gary Lewandowski. Gary, welcome. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Thanks on, for Jonah. Gary. Yeah, yeah, yeah we uh, really looking really looking forward to having you on, um, Gary. We need to talk. <laughs> um, I love I love I love that opening line for you for you uh, talking about breakups. So we're gonna be talking about breakups today and 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 self expansion. I love your work. Um, whenever you hear we need to talk, uh, panic just kind of like overwhelms everybody. So why? Is it that we use that term, do you think? Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, most solutions in relationships, you know, come from communication. And so, you know, if you're going to solve, if you have a problem that needs solving, communication is the way to solve it. Um, but, you know, it's also, we know that communication is the root of, of problems and solving problems. And so a lot of times we avoid those talks, right? And, you know, mm -hmm. there's research out there on the most taboo topics in relationships, and, you know, a lot of times, you know, I'll ask students about this in class and like, hey, guys, like, what do you what do you think are the taboo topics? And they usually come up with things like, you know, talking about exes and, you know, some sexual experiences and things like that. And those are some taboo topics. But the number one thing that people don't want to talk about is actually the relationship itself. You know, that that sort of, you know, what are we? Where is this going? You know, what's our future look like together? It, it, it's really anxiety provoking for a lot of folks. Um, and so when you start off that conversation with, <laughs> when you talk, it's usually not about like, you know, how wonderful of a partner you are, how great things are going, um, which, you know, probably also suggests we need to have more of those conversations. So it's not so off-putting when we, you approach something as, hey, we need to talk. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess it's just because maybe we're not talking in the first place. So whenever you do talk, it's going to be about a bad thing. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you, probably, you probably need more of those relationship check-in moments, right? Where it's, you know, kind of the state of our union discussions with your partner so that when you do have them, it's not always bringing up the bad things, right? It, it's kind of, you know, when you're in a, in a job and your boss wants to meet with you, you have, kind of have this like, oh, uh oh, kind of, you know, reaction to it. And it's because it's usually something bad. And so you don't really want to set up that same kind of dynamic with your relationship. Right. It's almost like a no news is good news sort of setup. Okay. <laughs> no, it's, it's absolutely true. You know, and we kind of, you know, we pay a lot of attention. We have a negativity bias. We pay a lot of attention to bad things. And so, you know, we, we want to have more affirmations, you know, of our love for our partner. And, you know, we're generally pretty good at that in the beginning of our relationships. And then we get lazy. Absolutely. Yeah. Lazy is probably a great way to, uh, to describe it sometimes. Um, I just want to quickly ask you, and this is a very simple question uh, that you'll probably scoff at, and that's fair, but I, why are relationships important in the first place? Like what, what makes us destined to have relationships and what do those mean to us that th this is the sound of me scoffing <laughs> <laughs> i mean i think if you think into in, your life and you know all of the best moments you've had um relationships are at the center of those things right falling in love um you know getting married you know even relationships that are non-romantic you know having kids you know relationships with your parents i mean it, it's the center of all of our best times um, but, you know, relationships are also the, the center of a lot of our bad times as well. And, you know, breakups, divorce, um, fights with our romantic partners and, and things like that. You know, it, it's also bad, too. 
Um, but we're fundamentally social creatures, right? We have a fundamental need to belong and need to have affiliation with other humans. And so, you know, how we forge and, and build those relationships is really central to our identity. You know, think of who you would be and how you would define yourself if you didn't have relationships. There's not a lot there. Um, and so, you know, I, I tell my students all the time that, you know, I'm really fortunate to get to study two of the most important things in life. You know, I, I study relationships and I study the sense of self. And, you know, there, there's probably no two things that are more central to your everyday existence than relationships and self. Yeah, absolutely. Gary, I have a bit of an odd question for you. Okay. Uh, does your first, was your first partner, do they attribute your line of work to them? <laughs> <laughs> your first breakup, do they think like I made your career? Is that what happened? <laughs> I don't know. You have to ask her. I don't talk to her anymore. <laughs> That's probably good for your current relationships. <laughs> I mean, so, some people that I've dated in my lifetime have sought me back out and we're now friends on Facebook. So that, I don't know if that's a good sign or not. Um, <laughs> I, well, I have a question for you then too, Gary. This is interesting too. I mean, just, uh, you know, just to pick your brain, what is, there's a lot of questions I have with breakups. I love talking about just relationships in general. So this is really fun because relationship researchers often aren't thinking of, you know, when relationships go bad. And I, and I really like the way that you, you know, you, you stated is that, you know, sometimes relationships should, you shouldn't be in a relationship. Sometimes they're bad for you. And, uh, and relationship researchers are always trying to figure out how to improve relationships. How can we fix this? How can we fix that? But sometimes breaking up is actually the most optimal outcome for both partners, right? Absolutely. I mean, relationships should be good, right? And we, we, it's so obvious that we don't say it very often or, or really even consider it when we're making decisions, but relationships should be good. And so, you know, the relationships that end, they're ending for a reason, right? And so, you know, I say in the TED Talk, great relationships seldom fail, but bad ones do as they should, right? And so if your relationship isn't, you know, thriving, maybe it, ending it is the best thing because everyone deserves a great relationship. And so if you haven't found yours and your relationship isn't great, then getting out of one, you know, basically allows you and frees you up to go find one that really is great for you. In that case, then, uh, you know, if breakups are about losing something, why don't we like to lose things? You know, I think it kind of goes back to that, you know, we're fundamentally social creatures and, you know, losing a relationship is, you know, you know, if, if relationships are important, anytime you lose something important, it's going to hurt a little bit. Right. And, you know, a lot of my research on breakup has focused on the positive side of breakup. Um, but, you know, I'm always careful to point out and not everyone always hears this aspect of it is just because I'm suggesting that breakup can be positive doesn't mean it's entirely positive, right? And so if, if you, you know, every once in a while, I'll scroll through the comments on, you know, the, uh, the TED Talk on YouTube, and you see people say things like, you know, what is this guy talking about? But there's, you know, breakups aren't entirely good. You know, they're, they're definitely bad. And it's like, no, no, what I'm saying is it's not entirely bad. Right? Like I, you know, you talk about kind of like your past experience and, you know, I've had both kinds of breakups. I had ones where I was devastated and lost my sense of self and it was horrible. And I had ones where it was like, wow, I should have done that a lot sooner. Uh, but even in those, even in that good one, um, the one I can think of in particular, um, <laughs> it always makes me smile when I think about it. Cause I'm like, oh yeah, that was a bad one. Um, <laughs> you know, it wasn't entirely positive. Like you still have a little bit of guilt. You still have a little bit of regret. You know, you, you did love that person before and maybe you still do to some degree. And so you don't, you know, no one wants to go out there hurting people. Right. And so yeah. You do still have a sense of loss because you have a loss of time, you have a loss of energy, um, you know, you have a loss of relationships, not just with the person you're breaking up with, but like, you know, their extended family and friends. I mean, there's always loss with breakup. And so, you know, we're sensitive to loss. You know, you look at all of Kahneman's research on loss, you know, loss aversion and things like, you know, we don't like loss right. um, and when sometimes it's really good for us. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, an interesting thing with this too, and I... Uh, you you bring it up like you know staying in relationships for too long uh i feel like this happens <laughs> not in every relationship again this is a, i love this work because it's always anecdotal too you always think back about your relationships and i chuckle because i do the same i'm doing the same thing right now you you stay you stay in relationships too long why is it that uh you know i mean and there's a million reasons but what do you think are like the most common reasons for why people neglect to get out of those relationships is, is it fear of being you know alone i i have i have a thought that it's you know break up the hardest thing about breakups is the transition into a new type of lifestyle that you aren't used to anymore 
I mean, I think, you know, a lot of my work focuses on self and identity. And so I, I think part of it is if you've been in a relationship for a long period of time, you think of yourself as someone's partner. Yeah. And so losing that relationship means you have to redefine your roles and redefine, you know, how you see yourself. And, and that's not always easy. We, we, we cling very closely to our sense of self and don't like to revise it very much. And so, you know, a breakup's going to force you to reconsider who you are as a person, which, which can be challenging. And I also think there is a certain degree of, you know, fear of being single, you know, a fear of, you know, a sense of loneliness that you, you don't want to have. You know, when you have a relationship partner, you always have something to do and somebody to do it with. Right. And so when you lose that, you know, maybe while you're in your relationship, you neglected your friends a little more than you should have. And now you got to kind of go back and rekindle some of those relationships. And so, you know, there's, those transitions are always hard. And so, you know, the research shows people think about breakup for a long period of time before they actually pull the trigger. Right. I think it's, you know, when people are thinking about getting divorced, it's it's around five years that people spend thinking about it um, before actually going through with it. When it comes to, you know, non-marital breakups, it's, it's a period of several months. Right. So people don't, people don't take breakup lightly. They don't take, you know, breaking away lightly because, you know, time, time and investments, they, they matter a lot. Right. And so I mean, it's something I talk to students about a lot when I when I teach my relationships course is the sense of, you know, the amount of time. And you hear a lot of times when, when people talk about, you know, breakup consideration, they'll say things like, well, you know, I don't want to look at it like I wasted the last five months of my life. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's fair. Like, we don't want to waste five months is, an, is a non, it's not an insignificant amount of time. And so, Absolutely. you know, I remind them though, it's like, you know, what's worse than wasting five months? Like is five years worse? They're <laughs> 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 all 15 years. What about 50 years? Like all those things are worse. You know, and you kind of see my point, but you know, what's worse than five months, six months. Mm-hmm. So what's worse than that is seven months. And so, you know, you kind of have to, at some point cut your losses and, you know, the economists talk about, you know, throwing good money after bad. And it's the same kind of mentality, I think, is that, you know, if you know, it's, if you know, it's a bad relationship and, you know, sure you might've wasted five months, you know, but you don't want to waste more than that. Right. Absolutely. It's kind yeah. of like the sunk cost fallacy, right? Is that exactly. like, yeah. Like the idea of you've already put so much time into this. So, you know, when you think about all the time you put into it, you're like, well, should I stay in longer? Because it's I put so much effort into it already. Right. And, you know, I, the way to sort of step out of that and, and not fall into that fallacy is to think, you know, what if someone forced you to break up with this person? You had no choice about it. <laughs> would this be the one person of all the people out there in the world that you would seek out a new relationship with? Right. Right. And so you kind of take that sunk cost aspect out of it. And it's like, you know, if you had a blank slate, would this be the person you pick to spend the rest of your life with in the next six months with? And a lot of times... If you're honest about it, the answer is no. That's a really interesting insight. I've never thought of it that way. <laughs> this this forced dilemma that you can create in your own mind to get out of a relationship. Yeah, it's like a forced perspective taking. And it's, yeah. you know, the other one I like that to say to people is like, you know, what if your friend was in the same situation? Like, what would you suggest for them to do? Yeah. And a lot of times people, you know, when it's not about themselves, they can kind of step out of that role and, and see things more clearly. Absolutely. This, so not all breakups are the same though, Gary. So let's, let's talk about like, you know, I, I, the one question that comes to my head and I always, I always ask people about this, especially when you're starting to, ah, I'm weird. Okay. I guess I'm weird in this sense, but I'll ask people. You know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is why I'm not doing so well right now, Gary, in the dating game. Just um, be fun at parties. Yeah, 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 exactly. I'm like, how long has it been since you got shown? How bad, are, how bad are you? Feeling? No. Um, so like, how long does it take to get over a breakup? Right. I feel like that's a conversation that, uh, you know, I love having with people and like people always have different perspectives and opinions on how long it takes to get over a relationship, especially when it's a fresh one too. Right. You always have that, like uh, your friends might be like, kind of like approaching it, like you're grieving or like, you know, like it's like tiptoeing around the issue. It's like, are you doing okay, buddy? Like, how's everything going? What do we know about how long it takes to get over a breakup? Not a lot. Right. You know, it's one of those, it's a great question. It's a question that I get asked a lot when it comes to, because it's, it's like an obvious question because everyone just wants to kind of know is like how long is the pain gonna last man like yeah what's normal yeah. yeah like it, it, this hurts and it's hurt for a week is, is it almost over and you know the, the worst answer but is the most accurate answer is it depends right time is such a, a horrible variable when it comes to relationships you know it's like people always want to ask on the other side too it's like well how long do i need to be in a relationship before i can start thinking about taking the next step and it's like well, it depends, right? I mean, it's like True. The, the number of weeks, the number of months are irrelevant to the extent that, you know, it's what you're doing in those weeks and months. And so, you know, it, it's the same with breakup and, and dealing with it. Um, there's, there's one 
no study that I know of has definitively looked at this to try to pinpoint like a magic kind of window of, of what the amount of time is. Um, I can just say, you know, it's not going to be quick, right? It's, it's not, a, it's not a week. It's probably not even a month. Um, but it's also probably not a year, right? It's, it's, there's some in between spot in there where, you know, depending on other factors, like, you know, finding another partner, finding other activities, spending time focusing on yourself, um, to the extent you're seeking out some of these strategies for coping, the time is going to shrink. Right. You know, if you spend much of that time kind of, you know, sitting in a dark closet, eating pints of Ben and Jerry's and just ruminating on the misery that you're experiencing, <laughs> I mean, that's just going to prolong the pain. Have you been watching me, Gary? What's, what's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> so with that in mind, Gary, then like, what can we do to improve ourselves when we do break up or if we do break up? Like you know, what I, gets us out of that funk? You know, I, there's a, there's a couple of things, um, you know, and some of the things I've looked at in my research, one is, is very simple and, you know, it's a writing exercise, you know, it's, it's sort of the classic Penny Baker writing paradigm where you have people write about a trauma in this case, breakup. Um, and what we had people do is we had some people write about the negative aspects of it, which is classic, you know, how Penny Baker did it. Um, and so what you find with those folks is they're writing about how miserable they are and, and, you know, they do it over a period of a couple of days and, you know, kind of reminiscing on the whole experience and you expect them to feel worse, but they don't, they, they feel better after that. You know, it's sort of, um, cathartic, right? They're, they're, they're getting some of that, um, anxiety and those negative feelings out. And it's also the writing helps them process it at a different level. Um, but what we also had people do was intentionally focus on the positives, um, because so much of, of research on breakup just focuses on the negative side. Um, for, for good reason. I mean, it, breakup is, is, has plenty of negative to go around. Um, but so what we had people do is intentionally, and this was randomly assigned, we had people force them to focus on the positive aspects of the experience leading up to it, the days after, immediately after, and all those kinds of things. And we found was those people did even better. Um, you know, as much as the people focus on negative writing did okay, um, the people focus on the positives did even better in terms of experiencing more positive emotions um, after their breakup. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, not everybody wants a writing assignment after they break up. Right? <laughs> like that sounds kind of awful in a lot of ways. Um, and as one of my students, you know, one time when I talked about this class, put it like, Dr. L, seriously, no one wants to write anything. Uh, you know, very, point. very millennial. Yeah, like, it's true. Like, you know, maybe text it. I don't know. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, it just goes to show that, you know, sometimes the intentionality of focusing on the good things and again, kind of stepping outside of your typical perspective um, is helpful, you know, and forcing yourself to reconsider, you know, what, sure, this sucks. I'm sad. You know, I feel a little lonely, but you know, what are the, what are the good aspects to this? Um, and that seems to help people, um, you know, and that's, you know, we, we know this from some other research too. Um, Dave Sparra at the University of Arizona has done some work. Um, him and his students, where, you know, the people that come to the study and spend 10 sessions going through processing their breakup did better simply by being in the experiment. Um, and it's really just because they're giving themselves a chance to think about their breakup, process it um, in a way that maybe they wouldn't otherwise. Right. Are people that don't process the breakups, do they tend to do worse? Um, you know, at least as far as, you know, the research I've done with that writing study is concerned and, and some other things. Yeah. I mean, you know, the people that we just kind of leave to their own devices, they are doing worse. Um, they're experiencing more negative emotions, fewer positive emotions. Um, because, you know, again, I think people kind of retreat into, you know, when they, when they feel bad that they're, they don't want to, you know, when you feel you don't necessarily want to talk to other people and talk things out and, you know, you're not necessarily doing the things that are going to be helpful. Right. Not being able to reflect on what you may have done wrong or your partner may have done wrong doesn't seem like an adaptive thing to do, right? Like if you're just shutting that out and ignoring it and then moving on to the next relationship, I, I could see that having a lot of, you know, future problems. Uh, yeah, so sure. You know, if you to repeat the same patterns, right? You're going to kind of keep doing the same things. And, you know, we people will talk to their friends, but, you know, our friends are our friends. They're not our therapists, right? And yeah. so, you know, it can be useful to some degree, but you know, it's, it's not always that your friend is good enough where they'll actually call you out on your crap. Right. Yeah. Right. Where it's like, hey, you know, part of the reason you had a problem with that relationship is you keep picking guys or, you know, partners like that guy. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, that that kind of stuff can can be, you know, 
really helpful and really much needed. Absolutely. With with uh, breakups, I mean, with this work, it's interesting. We're talking about breakups, but we haven't really discussed whether or not you've been dumped. You're the dumpy, you're the dumper, or if it's mutual. Because <laughs> I imagine those groups are probably uniquely different, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, they're different. I mean, it's always, you're going to have a little bit of an advantage being um, <laughs> the dumper. Yeah, the dumper. Yeah, I was going to say, I was that the dumper? Yeah, the dumper. <laughs> it sounds bad. Yeah, initiator um, sounds yeah, a lot better for sure. I'm going to be classy and say initiator. Um, and so, you know, when you're the initiator, you have a head start, right? Like you, you've been thinking about it again, you know, kind of going back to that, you know, people mm. do these things for months. Whereas if you're the non-initiator, the person who this is being sprung on, it might come as a complete surprise. Right. And so for that reason, you, you know, the, the initiator has some benefit. Now it, it's a lot like most things, you know, people think, oh, well, you know, the initiator, they have it easy. And they have it easier, but then I wouldn't say that they have it easy. Um, you know, they, they still are responsible for crushing the feelings and soul and heart of someone that they love. Um, and if, you know, I think most people take that pretty seriously, right? You know, you're not going to take it lightly that you're about to ruin somebody's day slash month slash year. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the initiator, it, they don't get off scot-free. Um, they, they experience some negative emotions as well, like regret things like that. Yeah. And I think we have some guilt. Absolutely. Yeah. We have a, we had a a previous episode with Lydia Roos from university of North Carolina and, and she categorizes it and some researchers categorize it as a traumatic event. Right. And I, I I can see that uh, regardless of whether or not you're the initiator or not. Sure. And you know, you don't want to be, think of yourself as the precipitator of a traumatic event for someone you cared about. Do you want to get into some of the self-expansion stuff? So like how, cause I, I think now we've talked about at length, you know, breakups and, and the, the good and bad within those, but how you as an individual can grow from those. I think that's a really unique perspective that you take, Gary, with the self-expansion work. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, self-expansion is, is this idea that I, I've been studying since grad school. I, I was fortunate enough to work with Art Aaron um, at University of Stony Brook. Um, and, you know, it's this idea that we all kind of, we all this fundamental motivation to grow and improve as a person. And so, you know, we want to add to our sense of self, and, you know, there's a couple ways to do that. And, you know, his model basically suggests that romantic relationships in particular are one of the primary ways that we add to our sense of self. Um, and that by doing so, adding to that sense of self, we increase our self-esteem, we increase our self-efficacy, um, you know, because our partner helps us grow and, and change and improve as a person. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and so when they're not... Uh when you're not growing as a person within a relationship, what are like the, I mean, I guess the telltale signs of it, like, are, are there, are there a, a red, like, I guess red flags is, is the, the word that I'm looking for, but like red flags that you're not growing within a relationship. And does everybody across the board feel like uh, growth, individual growth and self-expansion is a crucial aspect to a good relationship? Um, yeah. So I, and I think the biggest telltale sign is boredom. Okay. Right. And yeah. so, you know, some, some folks I was in grad school with it at the time, Greg Strong did a paper on boredom and how it relates to self-expansion. Cheryl Harrison Chuck um, has done some work on this as well. But, you know, it's when your relation, when you're not growing and improving, you know, your relationship starts feeling stagnant and you get bored. Um, we know, you know, there was a long longitudinal study on boredom in relationships um, that predicted, you know, nine years out that relationship boredom has these, you know, bad effects for your relationship. It, it, it's harmful. Um, and so, you know, if you're having, experiencing boredom, um, it, you use it as a pivot point, I think, right. You know, it, it's not in and of itself, it's not a bad thing, but it, it's like an early indicator that, you know, your relationship isn't as self-expanding as it could be. Um, and then you take that opportunity to engage in some expanding activities, things that are new, interesting, challenging, and exciting. Um, now you also had asked, you know, is, is self-expansion for everybody basically, right? You know, are some people more inclined to want to expand than others? Yeah. Um, and this is actually something, um, a couple of years ago, one of my undergraduate did a thesis on this, um, Aaron Hughes, and then she, she went on to work with Erica Slaughter at Villanova and is now working with Eli Finkel and Wendy Gardner at yeah. Northwestern. Yeah. Um, but her, Erica and I published a paper looking at self-expansion preferences and basically, you know, are some people expanders and some people conservers? Um, and it, it's, it's funny because when Aaron and I first talked about this with our undergraduate thesis, um, you know, I'm so immersed in self-expansion and partly why I like it is because I am a self-expander. Like I, just it makes no sense to me that you wouldn't want to constantly be growing and changing and improving. And so I had said to Aaron kind of flippantly, like, you know, we can do this as a project, but, you know, I think we're just going to find that everybody wants to expand. 
um, yeah. and grow. Cause like, why wouldn't you? Right. And it's like part <laughs> of, you know, when you're in college and you're around students all the time, like it, it's like the ripest time of your life for self-expansion. So it's kind of, it's, it's all around. Right. Um, but it turned out I was wrong you know, as I am with <laughs> um, in life. But, you know, it, there were plenty of people who were more what we called self-conservers, right? It was, these were the folks that were more, you know, I like status quo. I like to kind of stay who I am. You know, I'm not looking to push the envelope so much. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it ends up, you know, th there's, she, we recently published a paper and it was a 2019 paper. Um, there's a self-preference, self-expansion preference scale. Um, and there's like a single item one where it's like, you know, pick one of these two things, which one describes you, one's an expander, one's a conserver. And that sorts people out pretty well. And there's also a longer scale for that too. Um, Cause it, and you know, it's, it's a great area for future research that we haven't fully, you know, picked up on. Um, Cause I think there will be differences in terms of, you know, the people that want to expand versus the people that don't um, in terms of, you know, how much boredom, we kind of just assume boredom affects everybody negatively, but you know, if you're a conserver, maybe boredom's kind of what you're after, right? You know, I think that sense of stability and normalcy and continuity um, is really what you're looking for in a relationship. I wonder, would they, would they categorize it as boredom though? Probably not. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah, right. I mean, it's like very judgy on my part. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're clearly not one of those. I'm not. No, no, it's, it's, no they're probably just like, this is normal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't need excitement and, and you know, that even sounds judgy, but yeah. You know, it, not working probably, on self-expansion is not what something that they're looking forward to doing every day. They kind of like that kind of ha habitual uh, lifestyle. Right. You know, it, it's kind of, you know, like a, it just made me think of like a type A versus type B personality kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, you know, as I'm, I'm fairly type A and it, it, I have a hard time sometimes understanding that type B mentality of, you know, like, sure. oh, no, we just kind of rest and be good and content and like, no, 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 more. <laughs> <laughs> so Gary, this actually brings to mind a couple questions for me. And I, I guess the place to start is, is it a one-to-one -one match? Like can, do relationships work? best or exclusively even if it's, you know, a self-expander with a self-expander or can you have kind of an interaction? Could you have a, you know, somebody who's a, you know, pretty content uh, with somebody who wants to be a self-expander or is that just an impossible ask? I, you know, I, the honest answer is we don't know. And that's, you know, something that, you know, Aaron and I have actually discussed in terms of some future research with, with that preference scale. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, just kind of based on some of the other research that's out there, probably the, the best match is similarity, right? right? It's like, you know, you get an expander with an expander, you know, there's just less potential for conflict because you have two people who always kind of want to be growing and improving and challenging themselves. Um, you know, the opposites attract, you know, phenomenon is, is largely a fiction. It's more, you know, opposites attract than they attack, right? <laughs> You, you get somebody who's a conserver with someone who's an expander and, you know, the expander wants new, different change growth all the time. And the other person's like, no, let's just chill right. and do nothing and not be bored because it, it wouldn't be boring. It would just be normal. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, I think, is it possible? Sure. Is it is it the best match? Probably not. Right. You know, um, though, you know, it, it could be a little bit of, you know, there's that research on spend thrifts and tight wads where, you know, the people that like to spend and the people that like to save are attracted to each other because they kind of see things in each other that they want to aspire to be. Right. Sure. Right. Where it's like, if you're a conserver, maybe you're a conserver and you're quite content, but you always kind of wish you were a little bit more ambitious and outgoing and seeking out challenge. And maybe the expander is like, you know what? The simple life maybe is a little bit better. It has some appeal and, you know, maybe people could match up that way. Right. That kind of balancing each other out in a way. Yeah, balancing each other out and like, you know, I can, ex you know, as an, if I'm a real expander, right, I could find someone who's not an expander and expand by learning how not to be such an expander. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it would help me grow as a person to grow in a, you know, in a way that shows I don't need to grow as much, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I, it comes to my head, like this idea of people that are more independent versus dependent within relationships. Is that also kind of like playing a part in that? Like people that rely heavily on one partner versus you said being able to self-expand and, you know, see other people within that relationship with while you're in a relationship, that also must be a really important part too, right? Being able to self-expand outside of that romantic relationship. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, we definitely know that self-expansion outside of relationships is important, you know, and I think even, you know, just within the context of relationships, you can kind of look at it in terms of opportunities as depth versus breadth, right? And so, you know, you could try to maximize self-expansion by having lots of relationships. Mm. Um, 
but you know, you have lots of relationships. They're all going to be probably more superficial or, you know, have a singular deep relationship. Um, and you know, there's reason to think that the deeper relationships are ultimately going to be better because we know one of the primary ways we achieve self-expansion is through inclusion of other in the self. And so, you know, that's when I and you become more of a we, right? So you lose the, you lose the me in, in, in favor of the we. And, you know, by me including my partner and my sense of self, I actually start taking on some of their characteristics and traits and abilities. Um, and, you know, we know that that's a, a primary way that people self-expand. Now, of course, you know, it's certainly not the only way. And, you know, we know that people expand through the activities and a lot of those activities are done with a partner. Um, but some work I've done with Brent Mattingly from Ursinus, we focus a lot on individual self-expansion um, because so much of the self-expansion model had focused just on romantic relationships. We basically asked the same question you just asked, which is, you know, can people expand on their own outside of the relationship? And, you know, we basically found it, it operates exactly the same. Right. Um, you know, you take on, you, you experience novelty, challenge and interest and you grow as a person and, you know, you experience increased self-efficacy and all those good things. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I, when you're talking about, you know, this breadth and depth, it, it kind of got me thinking of, you know, self-expansion through friendships. It sounds harsh, but like the idea of like, no, I don't want to be your friend because I've got enough friends. That's kind of the balance, right? It's like I'm stretching <laughs> myself too thin and I'm not getting that breadth or I'm not getting that depth opposed to breadth. Yeah, it, it's it's a quality and quantity thing, right? It's, it's you know, if you have a lot of really good friends and you, you want to maintain a certain level of quality with those, yeah. you only have so many hours in a day, I guess. And, you know, and it's also, you know, you might only have so much interest in expanded. Right. Right. You've, ex you've expanded to what you consider to be a sufficient amount and, you know, you're good. Yeah. No one's got 200 very close friends, right? You just can't have that. Right. Yeah. Right. Not well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Gary, what happens then if, if somebody were to change in a relationship, they kind of move from being, you know, an expansionist to a conservationist kind of, or, or vice versa. Um, does that, is that a sign of impending doom for that relationship? If we assume that you kind of need to be matched or, or um, I, again, you know, I, I don't know. I don't, we, you know, we don't know for sure. I would say, you know, a lot of times because those changes are co-varying with age changes, I would suspect that over time people, when they're younger tend to be more expanders. And then as they get older, tend more towards conservers. Um, and as, you know, as long as your relationship trajectory is kind of mapping on to some of those age differences, I, I think, you know, both partners are likely to be going in the same direction most of the time. Now, anytime that part partners start diverging in terms of, you know, who they are as a person that can be problematic, right? You're, you're kind of changing the rules of the game that you and your partner established. And so if your partner thought they were in a relationship with one kind of person, someone who is, you know, let's say a, an more of a conserver. And now all of a sudden you get super adventurous and, you know, rock climbing, mountain climbing, you know, climbing, whatever, you know, <laughs> now that changes things a little bit. Right. And so, you know, that can be upsetting to, you know, the expectations you had for your relationship. All right. A funny anecdote, uh, a personal anecdote was when I met my wife, um, we were talking about, you know, things and she was saying, oh yeah, you know, I bought a place, um, and, uh, you know, I expect that there will be a lot of a lot of quiet nights watching Netflix. And in the back of my mind, I was like, oh, perfect. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, and, and yet you see people out there, you know, first dates and they're hiking mountains and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And, and maybe that just says more about myself and my wife than anything. We, we but, found uh, the conserver in the group, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> None of that sounds boring at all. It's yeah. Not <laughs> but but it's funny because I don't necessarily like I don't necessarily think of myself as being a conserver. I I like to think that um, that I work hard to ex be a self expansionist, and I'm trying to take on new challenges. And and my wife does the same thing, and and together we do new things. And and these are these are obviously important to us. And so it's funny. I feel like this trait this trait could change on any given moment. You know, if ask me, ask me tonight at eight 30 when I'm sitting there watching, you know, whatever on Netflix, I might have a totally different answer than, you know, at four o'clock when I, when we go out for a walk or we go, you know, do something kind of different. 
Sure. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's that's true of a lot of individual differences, right? It's like you think of how outgoing a person is, how outgoing you are in general also varies from moment to moment and day to day. Yeah. Um, you know, and I also think, you know, kind of your point about not thinking of yourself as a conserver because you, you like novelty and, and things like that. You know, a lot of times the self-expansion stuff, and I'm, I'm guilty of it myself when I describe it, we emphasize probably too much the excitement yeah. side of it. Um, I mean, that's that's kind of how the model was originally proposed, that excitement was a big part of the self-expansion process. Um, but some of the work that we've done, you know, in, in the last few years really shows excitement is helpful, but it's not central, right? It, it's more the novelty, interest, and challenge. And so, um, you know, one of the studies we did, Brent Manningly and I, with individual self-expansion, um, and it's one of my favorite ones because it, it kind of puts this excitement thing to rest a little bit is, you know, we had people read facts, and some people re read a bunch of interesting facts, um, and some people read a bunch of dull facts, and it was like parallel things. Like, so the dull facts was something like, um, you know, butterflies turn into caterpillars, right? Like, okay, that's a fact, and but it's like, you know, we learned that in kindergarten. Um, but then the other, the group with the expanding facts learned that butterflies taste with their feet, okay. which, you know, good to know. But, you know, something, you know, that's new, that's interesting, you know, and, you know, to think about it maybe is a little bit challenging in terms of like, well, I, I feel like I should have known that maybe. Um, but so, you know, we had people read a bunch of those kinds of facts and what we found the same self-expansion um, effects from from just reading a bunch of facts, right? So, you know, there's no excitement. There's none of that like visceral excitement that you would think of um, with a lot of self-expanding activities from just, you know, learning a bunch of facts. And so, you know, we, we talk about self-expanding activities. It's really easy. You know, the, I think the most common one I've, I've seen at conferences when people talk about this, they always talk about skydiving. Like skydiving is a self-expanding activity. And it's like, it sure is, right? It's novel. It's interesting. It's challenging. It's it's exciting. But you know, you know, it's also a self-expanding activity. Going to a poetry reading, right? I mean, that that's checks most of those boxes too. And we know that excitement, like I said, is helpful, but it's it's not a it's it's not a must-have. Yeah, we're almost conflating heart rate change. Yeah, with, yeah. Yes. absolutely. Right? That's a really good way to put it. It's like you know, you're conflating the two things, and it. It doesn't have to be rock climbing and, you know, super exciting things. It's going out to a new restaurant and trying a new dish. Yeah. Right. That, that works too. What's so, yeah. I'm curious then Gary, cause I'm, I, I love that you, the, the definition of self-expansion, we've talked so much about it, but like, how do you, or what, what can you do to self-expand? I'm thinking in my head, you know, um, the way that I feel like I've been self-expanding lately is, you know, trying to read more and consume more of interesting topics that I haven't done before. Um, but like you talk about novelty, interest and challenge. And I think those are all really, there's a ton of things you can do within those to self-expand. So like what are, you know, typical ways of self-expanding that aren't skydiving, bungee jumping or taking a hike? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, you know, watching a documentary on Netflix, mm -hmm. right. It's, it's reading books that you haven't, you know, read before. Um, you know, by an author you've never read before, a topic you've never read before. Um, it's playing video. It's playing video games. Playing a video game you haven't done. You know, even if it's a game, you know, game on your phone or a game on you know your console, whatever it happens to be. You know, trying teaching yourself to um, do something around the house that you had to fix. Yeah. Right. You know, you watch a YouTube video about how to you know fix a leaky faucet, and you go fix a leaky faucet. I mean, like that's a self-expanding activity. Yeah. Um, and it's really. This is like one of those things, it, it, it's tough to define because almost anything could be a self-expanding activity. It really depends on the person and what their pre-existing skill set is. But it's, you know, I, I would just generally suggest to folks who, you know, want to embrace this idea of self-expansion and, and make it work for them in their relationships is really just look for ways to, to push outside your comfort zone a little bit, right? Don't always go to the exact same restaurant or order from the exact same takeout or, you know, visit the exact same places, you know, in, intentionally go do something different. Um, is we so often fall into the same habits of, of, of routines and things that, you know, back when people used to drive to work, you know, I would always suggest, you know, just one, once, once a week, just drive slightly different way to work, even though it might take two minutes longer or whatever, just do something a little bit different, mm -hmm. um, helps, you know, build in some self-expansion. Absolutely. Novelty. I think the novelty, the new and interesting and challenging, it's so easy to do. Like, you know, for example, you could, Plunge your toilet and that's self-expansion, right? I mean, like, if you've never done it before, go for it. Try and experience something new, right? <laughs> Sounds like a great Friday night. <laughs> I, I really appreciate that uh, sentiment. Everybody's different. And this is bringing back to, you know, how to get over breakups or what breakups are like for everybody. They're always going to be different depending on who you are, who you're with, and, and the way that you interact with the world. 
Yeah, and you, you kind of think of, you know, particularly if you're thinking about self-expansion in terms of the benefits for relationships, think of how, you know, any relationship partners are early in the relationship when they're dating and, and doing things together in the first months or first year. I mean, you're constantly looking for activities that are self-expanding. You don't think of it that way, but that's essentially what you're doing. You're looking for new and interesting things to do challenging things, places you've never gone before, and you're, you're really adventurous. Um, and it's ironic because early in your relationship, you probably don't need to be doing as many of those things because just getting to know each other is self-expanding in and of itself, right. right? Just getting to, you know, having conversations with a new partner, you're learning a lot about them. Um, so that that's self-expanding, but, you know, we also, you know, layer on top of that, some dating and, you know, the exciting kinds of dates that we go on. Um, it only helps self-expansion and, you know, later in your relationship, that's when you really need to be doing more of those things, yeah. you know, cause you're not getting as much of the, you know, you've heard all your partner's stories, you know, every fact about them. <laughs> um, you could tell their stories for them kind of thing. And so, exactly. you know, that's when you got to start doing, you know, that's when you want to, you know, watch the bachelor to get some ideas for some dates. <laughs> so Gary, you're telling me that self-expansion at the beginning of a relationship can be, you know, trying to figure out a TV show that you both might like because you're, you know, learning something new about your partner there's sort of a bit of mystery there. You're, you're learning some novelty there. Or trying but, something new for yourself. Within or that. trying something new for yourself. But later on, when you already know that he or she likes comedies, that's no longer self-expansion because you've already got that knowledge. It's no longer novel to you, right? Right. And, you know, and, and by that point in your relationship, if your partner liked comedies and you didn't, you actually have grown to like comedies as well because you're including who they are as a person in your own sense of self. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, you, you guys have actually, you begun, you begin to merge your identities. And so not only do you know them really well, they're, they're part of you in a way that they weren't before. And so doing other new, exciting, challenging, and interesting things becomes even more important. It's a really interesting insight, Gary, because uh, I'm always... I've always realized that that's what happens when you're in a relationship, right? You become more similar to that person. And then once that relationship ends, you kind of go back to whatever you may have been sans that person, right? Mm -hmm. And that looking at it through self-expansion and being able to kind of expand yourself within that relationship makes a lot of sense because that's your, you are growing as a person, but then you, do, do you, I guess, do you lose that expansion if you go back to saying, actually, you know what? I don't actually like comedies. Now I think about it, <laughs> now that I'm not with that person, I'm like, screw comedies. I'm not watching comedies. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, it's possible, yeah. right? I mean, you know, to some extent, if you're, you know, you like comedies because of them and you only liked it because of them, then when you lose them, you can lose that aspect. Right. And so, you know, we do see some of that when people break up, mm. right? If your partner was very self-expanding and you end that relationship, you experience more loss of self. Right. And part of it's because you're losing the person that you were including. And so you don't have access to that anymore. Um, so, you know, people really do feel a tangible loss of self when, when they break up those kinds of relationships. But then I guess if you go back to what you used to like, I mean, depending on how that relationship was, that is self-expansion again then, right? Because you're going back, you know what? I love horror movies. I'm going to go watch more horror movies because I never got to do that in my relationship. That's you expanding again, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, you can think of it as expanding again. We, you know, we tend to talk about it as a rediscovery of the self. Rediscovery of the self, right? okay. Right. I mean, it's sort of an aspect of yourself that you neglected yeah. or, you know, purposely, you know, forsaken it, it to, you know, you liked horror movies, your partner didn't like horror movies. So you just never watched horror movies. Yeah. So we know um, from some of the work we've done with coping with breakup that actually those rediscovery of self activities are particularly helpful. Absolutely. Um, you know, going back to who you were, rekindling some of those lost elements of yourself, um, you know, that the aspects that maybe you diminished, um, just kind of tucked away because your partner didn't like it or, you know, didn't have the same likes that you had um, is really helpful. And we actually found that those were more helpful than we originally thought, you know, engaging in self-expanding activities was going to be the best thing post breakup because you're, you know, sort of replacing what you lost, right? Like, you know, your partner helped you expand. So we're going to get rid of, we're going to now have you expand with new things to kind of get rid of what you lost. But what we found was it was rediscovery that mattered more mainly because you can't go wrong with rediscovery right? in the sense of, you know, it's sort of a sure thing that you, you're going to like it. Mm -hmm. um, what we found, what you find with self-expanding activities is sometimes people think they're really going to like something and it turns out they don't. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I might say like, oh, I want to get over my breakup. You know what I really, I've always wanted to do. I've always wanted to learn how to ride a motorcycle. And then they go try to learn how to ride a motorcycle and they crash. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That wasn't, that didn't work out as well as I thought, but it, it 
they had ridden motorcycles before and just gave it up for, you know, the relationship getting back to it, you know, they already know they like it. They already know they're good at it and they're going to, you know, kind of get back to the person they used to be. Right. And I'm sure that's quite empowering for a lot of people as well, right. To, to have that and regain that uh, as something to hold on to after, you know, having a hard time with a breakup. Absolutely. And it goes back to, you know, something I mentioned before is you know, we're really attached to our sense of self. And so, you know, we, we might stifle some aspects of our sense of self for the benefit of a relationship. Um, but then, you know, once we don't have that relationship around anymore as a reason to hold back, then, you know, we kind of experience a little bit of a rebound and get back to who we really are. Um, and, and we like, we generally like who we are. Um, and so getting back to those things can, can be really affirming. Gary, I'm going to ask you uh, a really kind of cheeky question here. Hopefully one, okay. hopefully one that I don't personally need to ever deal with again. <laughs> As a happily married man, I, I, I choose not to have to know this knowledge, but you know, maybe if my wife gets sick of me at some point, I'm going to ask you then, what are your top tips for managing a breakup? Top Mainly for Drake. Tip. It's really just to help Drake. Hey that. now, hey now. All right. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Okay, go on, Gary. <laughs> you know, some, some things I already mentioned, you know, I, I think, you know, people don't want a writing assignment, which is fine, but I think anything that helps you take perspective um, and kind of see your relationship from, from a new perspective. Um, Eli Finkel has a really nice marriage hack that he talks about, you know, sort of looking at your relationship from a, a benevolent third party, I think is how he puts it. Um, someone who's interested in, in the well-being of your relationship. Um, but, you know, do it as that benevolent third person who wants you to do well after your breakup and really see honestly what happened. Right. Um, you know, so I think, I think that's part of it, just kind of taking perspective, like I said, whether it's writing, you know, there's some research out there on um, watching romantic comedies and how that can help give insights to things. So, you know, whatever it takes to kind of take a little perspective, I think is good. Um, I think a real important one is spend some time with yourself. Um, and so be careful. We, we, as much as we know that getting into a new relationship helps get over an old relationship, you can perpetuate bad patterns. And so, you know, I think spending some time being comfortable with who you are so that you value who you are and aren't apt to lose who you are for the sake of a relationship is important. Um, you know, you want to have a clear sense of yourself before you, you know, start potentially merging your sense of self with somebody else. Um, I think that will just set you up for success. Um, and, I, and I think another one is avoid getting back together for the most right? I mean, generally that your relationship ended for a reason and it's probably a, a good reason, you know, we don't break up lightly. And so if your relationship ended, there's probably a good reason for it. And you know, research on, you know, these cyclical relationships on again, off again, you know, it generally shows that it just prolongs the pain. And so by kind of keeping yourself tethered to that relationship that has already failed a time or two, you're really missing out on opportunities to find, you know, that great relationship you probably deserve. Yeah. I didn't even think about uh, talking about on and again, off again, breakups and relationships. That's a really interesting point. So Gary, this is, this has been so much fun. I've, I've really, really enjoyed this and I, we're spoiled because we might be able to get you back again soon. Um, sure. So <laughs> if uh, he's not sick of us, if he yeah. doesn't want to break up. <laughs> I, I want to hear more about plunging. Toilets. That's great. <laughs> I'm in. Okay. I'm in. So there's no professional breakup just yet. This is good. Um, so last thing we like to finish off with Gary is myths and misconceptions. Uh, do you have any popular myths that you'd like to dispel for our viewers? You know, I think, I think one that relates to a lot of what we talked about today is that people think that the key to relationship success is you can't be selfish to have a su successful relationship. Right. And I think largely that's a myth, right? I mean, if you're too self-sacrificing and too willing to give up who you are as a person, your relationship's going to be on shaky ground in the first place. Um, and so you have to have a clearly defined sense of self and spend some time working on yourself, expanding yourself and, and really attending to who you are as a person. You know, we talk a lot about self-care these days, particularly in academia. Um, I, you know, I think it's, there's a relationship self-care as well. And so, you know, that old style of relationships where you, you kind of, you know, lay down and sacrifice everything you can and put your partner first at every last possible moment. Um, I, I think that's diminishing returns. Um, and it, it's, it's not necessarily the best way to think about relationships. There you go. The more you, the more we learn. <laughs> Better off we'll be in our relationships. Yeah. With that in mind, I'm going to go be selfish, I guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Well, and, and you know, it's, it's one of those things, your partner should want you to be selfish because then it enables them to be a little selfish too. And then, you know, you have two people who are developing themselves in ways that they want to, who also choose to be together and share it with each other. There's just more there to go around. Yeah. Being able to know what you want and be able to verbalize it or actually take action to get what you want with a partner sounds great because you both should be equally doing that. Right. And I think whenever there's this balance between that, that's where you probably see issues. Right. Right. You know, and, and you know, being supportive, you, you can, you can be selfish and supportive at the same time, right. You can selfishly want to do the things you want to do and be supportive of your, your partner's selfishness as well. Um, and that way, you know, it's a win-win. Yeah. And, and building off of exactly what you said with similarities, right. If you're both being selfish, but you love the same stuff. Great. <laughs> that seems like a win-win to me. Yeah, well, if if and even if you don't like the same things, right? If if you know you you one partner likes to read and the other person wants to go rock climbing, you can both be selfish and do those at the exact same time without dragging the other person into those activities with yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Excellent, Gary. If somebody wanted to get sort of insight, tips, tricks, whatever they might be from right from you, how might they go about doing that? Where could they find more of this delightful information? Sure. You know, right now I have a blog over at Psychology Today called The Psychology of Relationships. Um, about once or twice a month, I write up an article a lot of times about relationship science that has just been published. Um, and the other thing I have coming up, coming out on February 9th is my book, Stronger Than You Think. Um, and it's about how your relationship is probably better than you're giving it credit for. Um, that sometimes we're a little bit too hard on a relationship. And that uses, and I think I have like 350 citations from relationship science you know, all to help you realize how your relationship is much stronger than you think. Yeah, and we're re we're really excited to hear more about that, Gary. And we're gonna that's why we're gonna having you on again soon to to talk about that book and all the amazing insights that you have in that. So thanks again for coming on. This is amazing. Great. Thanks, guys. This was great. Awesome. Thanks, Gary. Okay, with that, we'll call it another episode of Brain Buzz. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Follow Brain Buzz on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to your, our newsletter at brainbuzzpodcast.com. And join us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Brain Buzz Pod. Until next time, cheers. Cheers. Oh, close, Drake. Oh, I tried. I tried. I don't know what's happening.